This week, the criminal underground behind email scams. There may be as many as seven or eight different independent organizations all working together to complete that sale. And the Brazilian scientist who dropped everything to study Zika virus and birth defects. All the projects that were not involved in Zika virus, they are on standby right now. And we just focused on Zika virus and the correlation with the microcephaly. Plus particles that are sort of particles colliding with other sort of particles, maybe. This is The Nature Podcast for May the 12th, 2016. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. A new paper uses a series of experiments to test a controversial link between the Zika virus and an increase in birth defects in Brazil. Here's Kerry. When your country is at the centre of an outbreak of disease and you work in science, it's only natural to think, can I help? At least that's the question Patricia Beltran Braga asked herself when the Zika virus arrived in Brazil in early 2015. Patricia is at the University of São Paulo. We stopped all of our research just to work with Zika virus. All of my students are just working with Zika virus at this time. Patricia usually works with brain cells in dishes, studying the characteristics of autism and muscular dystrophy. Her colleague Jean-Pierre Perron is an immunologist. The same for me. All the projects that were not involved in Zika virus, they are on standby right now. And we just focused on Zika virus and the correlation with the microcephaly. Microcephaly is a birth defect, where babies are born with unusually small heads and brains. Since the beginning of 2015, clinicians in Brazil have reported more babies than normal born with this typically rare condition. Now, usually the Zika virus doesn't cause anything more than a week of pretty mild symptoms. But because of the timing of this outbreak, Zika has now been strongly linked to microcephaly. However... The relationship between Zika virus and microcephaly wasn't proven yet. There were a lot of papers before showing that, yes, the virus is in the CNS of the, the microcephaly babies, but still in, in human infection, you cannot control. There's so many other aspects that may be involved. So, and at least in experimental model, we can show, look, there is this pregnant female mice, and when we infect it, the pups will have CNS lesions that is completely consistent with the Zika virus uh, pathology. So infecting the mums gave the pups the same symptoms as human babies whose mothers contracted Zika when they were pregnant, damage to the central nervous system and a smaller brain and head. Unlike some previous work, this team used the Brazilian strain of Zika to replicate the conditions in Brazil as closely as possible. It's pretty good evidence that Zika can cause microcephaly, but the animal model alone couldn't tell them why this strain of virus had this disastrous effect. So for that section of the new paper, they turned to an expat colleague for help, neuroscientist Alison Muotri at the University of California, San Diego. I was uh, just following the news, uh, and uh, I mean, it's my, uh, my home country, so I was very uh, empathetic to the people over there and the problems. Alison wondered how his lab could add to the work Patricia and Jean-Pierre were doing and help understand how the Zika virus was affecting brain cells. And uh, what my lab does is we create um, uh, mini-brains or cerebral organoids uh, from human, human pluripotent stem cells. And I thought that that would be a model to study the Zika virus. As the mini-brains grow in the lab, they look a lot like developing brains. So they're a good way to test the effect of the virus on a developing fetus. 
Nawatri realised that the virus was having an effect on how well brain cells could grow, and hence on the volume of the brain. We see that the virus can actually penetrate into those mini-brains, infect the cells, the dividing cells in these ventricular zones, and as a consequence, cortical neurons are affected, uh, which is parallel to what we see in the brains of the infected animals as well, so there is a reduction in, um, in, in the cortical thickness. The work showed that the mini-brains were smaller because the virus is targeting neurons that would usually be dividing and instead triggering them to kill themselves. And that's probably just the start, the scientists think. Here's Alison again. All the media really focus on, on microcephaly in humans because it, the, the images are quite dramatic. Um, but our data suggested that probably other tissues are affected. So this is basically the tip of the iceberg. There is more problems caused by the Zika virus that uh, we will uncover in the following years. The team have a lot of questions they would now like answers to. Thinking forward, I think we need to invest in a vaccine against the Zika virus, um, but also how to treat the ones that are already infected, and uh, especially because uh, we know that a microcephaly is just one of the consequences. Uh, even adults that are infected that seems to have no problems now, we don't know in the future if um, the virus will do something to, to these people. So these are all open questions. Jean-Pierre also has plenty of ideas for what to do next. There's a lot of things to do in a long term. For example, resistance to the virus. So no one knows if you get infected to the virus, what kind of memory, immune memory response you have. Brazil is about to hit the headlines for happier reasons. The Olympic Games are taking place in Rio de Janeiro in August. That's actually winter in Brazil, and the mosquitoes that carry Zika might be dwindling as a result. But the new report is another good reason to be extra vigilant. Here's Jean-Pierre Perron. I think uh, it's unquestionable right now that the Zika may directly cause microcephaly. So people should not have any kind of doubt about taking care uh, to avoid the contact with the virus, of course. That was Jean-Pierre Perron. He and Patricia Beltran-Braga are at the University of São Paulo in Brazil. Alison Muotri is at the University of California, San Diego. Their paper is available free online at nature.com nature. And at nature.com news, you can also find all our previous coverage of the outbreak. Coming up in the research highlights, Planet Nine may be glowing faintly and yeast cells in a jam. But before that, Noah Baker has been doing something he very rarely does, reading the spam in his inbox. Dear sir, madam, thanks for your sincerity and patience. Our new kind of RF wireless RGB LED wool washers come into being now. Our Canadian pharmacy has all your meds for 80% off retail. Save a fortune on Viagra, Cialis, Levitra and hundreds of other meds. Simply click. Recognise any of these? You know, too-good-to-be-true offers, mega-discounted handbags, something called Viagra Superforce. Whatever the product, be it counterfeit pharmaceuticals or prime-grade steel, it seems inevitable that, at some point, spam emails will try to sell it to you. And these kinds of scams have been around for a while. Spam is, is about uh, as close to original sin as we get in internet abuse. This is Stefan Savage from the University of California, San Diego. Uh, as soon as email is invented... Literally in the first years, you start having people using it for soliciting uh, various kinds of, of commercial activity that was unwanted. 
Stefan is interested in how scams like these work. Now, there's lots of different types of email scam. A certain Nigerian prince brings to mind here. But we don't want to overwhelm you with all the different types of scam. So in this story, we're just going to focus on the ones that sell you something. Back in 2011, Savage and his team wanted to find out what goes on behind the emails. So they set up a little experiment. Yeah, so we were fascinated by the fact that all of the effort in spam was focused on filtering it and blocking it. And we wanted to look at all the things that happened afterwards. And so we created a very large-scale system that simply acted like the most gullible user ever. And so we got um, spam feeds from a lot of businesses and security companies, and then we had a rack of servers that just clicked on every single one and attempted to make purchases from all of them. And then we cut a deal with a bank where we were able to um, get our own credit cards that would track the flow of money. And so that allowed us to track the financial infrastructure. As well as tracking the flow of money, Savage sent members of his team undercover, posing as scammers trying to get a cut of the profits. Gradually, they built a picture of the infrastructure behind the emails, which they backed up with a significant amount of data leaked from the criminal underground. What they found was a little surprising. You're used to thinking about it just in terms of the email. But in fact, the person who, who delivered that email to you is an independent contractor. They don't sell that product. They are working on a commission basis for a third party. And then there are a lot of different pieces involved in making sure that when you click on such a message that it makes money. There's a, the domain name, the, the URL that you have to click on, that needs to be registered with someone. And there's a whole business that deals with that. And then there are various servers that are responsible for making sure that when you click, let's say it was for a counterfeit pharmaceuticals, that there's a website that has content of things that you can buy. And then the, this organization will have contracted with a bank to accept your Visa or MasterCard payments. And so there may be as many as seven or eight different independent organizations all working together to complete that sale. Now, the people that click on these scams may well receive the product, but that doesn't mean they're getting the genuine article. Often they're counterfeit, unregulated and illegal. One of the biggest surprises to Savage came when he looked at the communications between these underground companies. It's really boring. They have HR problems. They have supply problems. They have problems making payroll. They have the same kinds of problems anyone running a business has. And I had a mental model that they had these very exciting cybercriminal problems. But, but no, it's just like any other small business. Savage's study helped throw some light on how the scams work, but it also uncovered some ways to combat them. There are all of these moving pieces in the machine involved in letting them profit from each of these emails. And we spent our time saying, well, what if we were able to disrupt any one of these individual gears in their machine? It turns out that the banking infrastructure, that is the merchant accounts that allow them to receive payments using Visa and MasterCard, are both relatively few and far between. But also when you take them down, the costs to the criminal organizations are huge. That has actually been remarkably effective. So our first test run we did with Microsoft against all of the organizations selling counterfeit Microsoft software. And over the course of six months, really shut down pretty much all of the banking infrastructure involved. And for the next 18 months, there was no one selling online counterfeit Microsoft software. It couldn't be done because there was no way to actually accept payment for it. This is not, however, a solution for all scams. 
Well, it is only one part of the scams, right? It's the ones that accept Visa and MasterCard payments. People today are not accepting Visa and MasterCard payments. They're asking for things like Bitcoin, which are much harder to trace. The other challenge, I think, as well, is that what has happened over time is a great number of these organizations have moved from European banks to various branches of the Bank of China. And it is an open question about how well Bank of China is going to end up responding uh, to these kinds of complaints from the various uh, from the various credit card brands. Savage thinks that combating these kinds of underground criminal organizations is going to need more than just technical solutions. One of the ironies is that 30% of the revenue comes from people who go into their spam folder and find the email that has been correctly classified as spam and then click on it and make a purchase. The, these scams are tapping a nascent demand that exists. It is uh, well-funded precisely because people want to buy those products. And there's a tendency for people to view computer security as this purely technical problem. And, and I think it's a very short-sighted point of view because... The problems we have in computer security just reflect a variety of conflicts that we have in, in life. And that's what I think a lot of our work has focused on, is don't just look at this as a technical issue, but try to understand why people fall vulnerable and what motivates the attackers and, and how all those things work together. That was Stefan Savage. To read more about cybersecurity, be it harmless nonsense or pernicious ransomware, we've got just the feature for you, written by Mitch Waldrop and published this week. Find it at nature.com forward slash news. Help propel us up the iTunes charts by subscribing to the show and leaving a rating. Just search Nature Podcasts on iTunes or on your favourite podcast finding service, where you'll also find plenty of episodes in the archive. Any questions, comments or poems about the show, drop us a line at podcast at nature.com. Why not tell us where and when you listen? Still to come, those mysterious kind of particles. But first, the research highlights. Here's Shamini Bundell. The hunt for our solar system's ninth planet may have just got a little easier because the still hypothetical Planet Nine could glow in the dark. Researchers first speculated about a ninth planet when they noticed strange behaviour in other objects' orbits. But nobody has seen Planet Nine. Yet. New research simulated how such a planet could have formed. It seems that the planet should still be contracting, causing it to heat up and emit infrared light, which we'd see as a glow. This should help us either find Planet Nine or rule it out. That paper's in astronomy and astrophysics. If you've ever been stuck in traffic, or come across jelly beans that refuse to leave their tube, you'll know what physicists mean by a jam. Scientists have found out that biological cells can jam too. They put yeast cells into a small container with a narrow outlet and waited for them to replicate. After a while, the cells began to jam rather than flowing out. They exerted so much pressure on their container that it started to crack. This jamming behaviour could explain how cells invade new environments, like bodily tissues or pores in the soil. Check out Nature Physics for more. Nearly time for the news chat, and Adam will be talking to Sarah Reardon about the genetics of intelligence and an Egyptian mummy with tattoos. Right now, though... Physicists, like small children, love to smash things together because sifting through the debris is a good way to learn how things work. 
Usually, physicists collide together the basic building blocks of matter, elementary particles like protons or electrons. But often within a material, the crucial building blocks to understand are not particles, but something more abstract called quasi-particles. And now, physicists have devised a way to smash them together too. Reporter Lizzie Gibney explains. Quasi-particles are things that look a lot like particles, even though they actually arise from the collective behaviour of interacting particles. Think of a bubble in water. Studying all the bustling molecules of H2O that form the edge of the bubble might be a bit overwhelming. Instead, it's much easier just to study the bubble itself. Quasiparticles, like the bubble in water, exist in all sorts of materials and all have the same properties of normal particles, things like mass and charge. In a semiconductor, for example, a moving electron, together with the way the other atoms and electrons shift around it as it travels, is called a quasiparticle. You can also have a quasiparticle based on the opposite, the positive hole left behind by an electron. Now physicists have found a way of smashing together these quasiparticles, the electron and the hole. I asked one of the researchers, Michilo Kira, at the University of Marburg in Germany, for some examples of the kinds of quasiparticle that nanoscientists are interested in. In nanoscience, we have all kinds of quasiparticles. So we have um, hydrogen-like electrons and holes coupled together, then we have polaritons, then we have dropletons, and so on. And all have a very ex- can have very exotic features, so they are all very interesting as, as such. And why is it important then that we understand these quasiparticles? It's very important because in a computer or a laser or so, all the interactions take place via these uh, quasiparticles. So if you really want to understand and optimize a device, you really have to see how these elementary quasiparticles behave and how you can manipulate them. And so in this particular case, we're talking about uh, the, the quasiparticle made up of an electron and this hole. So you wanted to learn more about these. Like any good physicist, the way to do that, it seemed, is, uh, is to smash them together. So why is that? Yes, because in the collisions, they will make, perform the elementary interactions. And also they will show up under which kind of particles they will uh, decay into. And from all these, so from the interactions and from the decay channels, you can really learn what, kind, what are the capabilities of these particles. So colliding particles together might be familiar to our listeners because of the Large Hadron Collider. How similar is this? Conceptually, it's exactly the same. So we take these quasi-particles, we start when they are initially motionless, then we accelerate them, then we make them collide and look at what happens after the collision. But there are major differences. So physically, you see it very clearly. So... In LHCs, it's a huge, so tens of kilometers radius, the, the accelerator. And of course, uh, in, uh, when we are talking about quasi-particles, as uh, discussed before, they are created by the interactions within the solid. So in our case, the semiconductor slab is a uh, uh, few millimeters. So for us, we just tightly focus laser light into uh, semiconductor material and all the physics is happening there. So physically, the size difference is tremendous. And then another major difference is that when you are talking about elementary particle, uh, then uh, um, if you want to see a Higgs boson, you have to have huge energies. Our, in a solid, the interesting energy ranges are easily quadrillion times smaller. So that's why we can do a long, away with, with much smaller sample, much smaller energies. 
So there are some quite big differences then in the uh, in the practicalities of the two. And um, how do you go about accelerating your quasiparticles? We use basically electromagnetic radiation, so visible light field, in order to create them. Because what will happen is that the, uh, light photons will create us an electron hole pair. And then what, once it's created, we can use another field, which is roughly a, a thousand times lower in energy. With that one, because these are charged particles, we can accelerate them and make them collide. And they annihilate with each other and emit a burst of light. And so while at the LHC they're looking for new particles, perhaps, that's a, but as, as you said, that's a much, much higher energy level. What kinds of things are you hoping to learn from these experiments? So essentially with this one, we understand the basic processes which the quasiparticles are capable of, what kind of interactions they do and so on. And with this information, the interest is to go to understand more and more complex quasiparticles. It is possible then to build uh, new lasers, new transistors, learn, for example, about superconductivity. So all kinds of what, what are very useful in nanoscience. And can anyone do this now? How difficult is it to create your own quasi-particle collider? Might we have one in every lab around the world? There are nowadays, I would say, hundreds of groups who could be doing this. So uh, we are really hopeful and optimistic that this will become a standard tool. I think it has a very good future. That was Makilo Kira speaking with Lizzie Gibney. Head to nature.com slash nature for the full paper, where you'll also find a news and views. Time now for our weekly news chat, and Sarah Reardon joins us on the line all the way from Washington, D.C. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Adam. So the first story this week is concerning this huge study that was undertaking looking for genetic links to educational attainment. Now, this study was seriously big. How many people were involved? Uh, It's 300,000 people. Um, It's the largest study of its kind ever. Why did they need it to be so big? Well, the, the bigger, the more people you have in a study, the more statistical power it'll have. If you're looking to find genes for something uh, that's really, really complex, uh, like intelligence, you're only going to be able to find these very rare genes if you have a very big group of people that you're looking at. So here they're looking at intelligence or kind of a proxy for it. What, what were they actually looking to assess? Uh, Here they were looking at the number of years that people stayed in school. And like you said, they're hoping that that's sort of a proxy for IQ. And did they find anything? Yeah, they they seem to have found um, a few dozen markers that are correlated with the number of years that you're in school. But the caveat here is that uh, they seem to have only a small contribution to, um, to that proxy. So presumably there's some other pretty important factors at play besides someone's genes. Yeah, well, obviously, um, we've always kind of known that even if uh, years of schooling is a good proxy for intelligence, that intelligence itself is very much a contribution of genes and environment. It's only about, uh, I believe, about 50% heritable. There have been these kind of studies trying to link genetic traits to intelligence before. And whenever they come out, they seem to court quite a lot of controversy. What's been the response to this study? Quite a lot of controversy. Um, There were several people in the story who were saying that the government shouldn't be funding these kinds of studies at all and this. And the the concern is largely that we're going to be selecting for people in the future if we can edit embryos or at least tell if embryos have these genes that people are going to be 
picking smarter babies and that that's something we shouldn't be messing with, or that you can genotype people as kids and figure out how much we should be supporting them, things like that. Just basically there are some things that we should leave up to nature and not try and control. Does research like this actually help us assess what the intelligence of a particular individual might be? This isn't really, at this point anyway, something that you could do for an individual person. You can't look at one person and say, oh, well, you've got X, Y, and Z genes for intelligence, so therefore we know that you're going to be smarter, stay in university longer. This is just when you have a really, really big cohort, on average, some markers in the, in the genome seem to be more linked to um, intelligence and educational achievement overall. Another caveat, too, is that this is all done in Europeans, and um, they would need to repeat it in people from Africa or Asia or um, many other groups to really see if these particular linkages hold true for other groups as well. Moving on now to our second and maybe slightly less controversial story, which is regarding an ancient Egyptian mummy. Now, they found some quite elaborate decorations on the torso of this mummy. Yeah, this was really, really cool. Um, This was a 3,000-year-old mummy of a woman that was found in Egypt, and um, they found were uh, tattoos all over her body. Um, And they found tattoos on mummies before, but they're just kind of like dots or dashes or something really simple. Um, But on this one, they found all sorts of really intricate designs. Um, She had uh, a couple of baboons tattooed on her neck and um, some lotus blossoms, I believe, on on her hips, some cows um, elsewhere on her body. And um, these had been invisible. People had missed this in the past because they were partly um, faded by some of the embalming fluid. But this time, researchers used uh, infrared imaging that brought these out in a really, really stark uh, relief. Now, I have to say, I've looked at a couple of these images, and quite often I can't quite see what I'm meant to be seeing because the flesh is quite distorted. How are they so sure that these tattoos are representing what they think they are? Um, they did a used a computer simulation to kind of digitally stretch out the skin and see what these would have looked like uh, if they were still on a person whose skin wasn't all wrinkled up in mummy e. So, as you said, these are kind of quite unique tattoos. Do we have any sense of what their cultural significance could be? Well, as with most things, uh, anthropologists and archaeologists want to say that it's a religious um, thing, and cows and baboons were probably some uh, held some importance in this in these cultures. It could just be that they also liked decorating their bodies like we do today. But their argument that it was of some particular importance was that this would have been really painful to get this many tattoos. And so they think that this particular woman is probably very important in her society for some uh, reason linked to religion. I I quite like the idea that in 3,000 years' time, someone who had a lot of tattoos today gets dug up and we assume that they must have been some kind of priest. Yeah, yeah. Um, some the tattoos are very cool just because they're on mummies, but they'd be we'd look at her a little funny today. So it's right on her throat. She's got these little baboons that look like they're worshiping some sort of thing in the middle. So uh, can't quite judge her by our modern standards of <laughs> beauty. But. <laughs> Well, beautiful or not, I guess it's a really cool discovery. Sarah, thank you very much for describing it to us. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you want to see photos of that mummy and to read other news stories, of course, head over to nature.com forward slash news. Come back next week for more of the best science news and research from nature. 
I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. If this episode of The Nature Podcast has whet your appetite for scientific research, check out Scientific Reports, the open access home for all scientifically sound research. They publish articles from all areas of the natural and clinical sciences. If you publish with them, you can expect fast and fair peer review and great exposure with over 2 million visitors a month to the website, nature.com slash srep. If you're one of the visitors, you can expect studies ranging from how to tell apart African from Asian elephant tusks using handheld X-ray devices to a study suggesting that pain tolerance correlates with how many friends you have. For all this and more, visit scientific reports at nature.com/srep.